I was online the other day skimming through various news articles and I was really struck by the overwhelming amount of bad news there is in our world today. I mean, article after article of nothing but bad news. And, and I began to think to myself, are there any articles containing any good news? And I had to look hard for those. There were some, but not that many. There were few and, and far between. And at times, when people read these types of articles in the paper and, and watch the news and hear about all the horrible things that are happening around the world, a question that many people ask is this, where is God in all of this? Is he even there? Is he in control and, and does he even care? We're going to address these questions this morning in our sermon for today. If you have your Bibles, turn to the massive book of Obadiah. We're continuing our sermon series through the the Minor Prophets, titled The Major Message of the Minor Prophets, and we're going to be focusing in on this very, very small book, actually. And uh, this book may be difficult for you to find because it's the smallest book in this section of Scripture, one of the smallest in the Bible. It's just 21 verses long. It's real easy to miss. It's found after the book of Amos. We were there last week. And before the book of Jonah. So if you can find Amos, just keep flipping and you'll reach Obadiah or find Jonah. Flip one book back and it'll be there, okay? The book of Obadiah. More than likely, at this time, when, when this book was written, when the events recorded in this book went down, the question of, is God in control, was probably a question that many of the Jews in the southern kingdom were asking. Because at this time, things were not going well for them. And that's putting it lightly, folks. In two of the three books that we've discussed already, in the book of Amos and in the book of Hosea, things were really good in both the northern and southern kingdoms of, of Israel and Judah. Remember last week we said that when, when Amos was written, both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel and Judah were in their best, most prosperous state in this divided kingdom, period. Things were good for them financially and militarily and politically. But remember we explained, though that's the case... Things were in shambles spiritually, which is why God sent Amos and others to them. And of course, they didn't heed the word of the prophets, right? We learn that as we read through, which is why things only got worse for these kingdoms. By the time Obadiah comes on the scene, things are just in shambles. They're just a wreck. The northern kingdom had already fallen. They were wiped out by the Assyrians. And the southern kingdom was under attack and on the verge of falling to Babylon, which is the major event discussed in this book. But before we get to that, let me tell you a little bit about Obadiah. And it won't take me very long because there's not a lot about him here. Though we know Obadiah was a prophet, that's about it. 
You know, there are actually 10 different Obadiahs mentioned in Scripture. And the reason we know they're all different is because they're mentioned at different times in Israel's history, and they come from all different places and families. For example, there was an Obadiah from the tribe of Issachar. There was an Obadiah who was a descendant of Saul, another who was a Levite, one who was a prince of Zebulun during the reign of King David. So believe it or not, Obadiah was a common name at this time. Thankfully, we've, we've changed, right? We've moved on to uh, names like John, Joe, and Bill. There's no Obadiahs in here, I don't think, so nobody will take offense to that. But at that time, Obadiah was just a, just a common name. So all we really know about, about this Obadiah is that he was probably Jewish and was a prophet during the time when Judah fell to Babylon. And scholars believe that he is the author of this very small book. And in this book, Obadiah is, though he's, he's writing to those in the southern kingdom of Judah, he is speaking against the Edomites. He's speaking against the nation of Edom. Now, let me ask you this real quick, right off the bat. If Obadiah is writing during a time when Judah fell to Babylon, why is he speaking words of judgment against Edom? I mean, I mean, who is Edom? What do they have to do with what's going on here? Why is Obadiah speaking judgment against them? Why not Babylon, right? I mean, they're the ones attacking the Jews in the south. What does Edom have to do with Judah's fall to Babylon. Well, that's where context comes in, folks. We're going to learn this morning that the Edomites played a key role in Judah's fall, which is why Obadiah's message is directed toward them. But it's also important to note here that this message, once again, though addressed to the Edomites, is also written to encourage the Jews in the south during this trying and difficult time. Obadiah is writing to these Jews who are going into captivity to tell them God is not finished with you yet. He is writing to assure them God has not quit on you. Though many of you have turned away from him, he has not turned away from you. Now at this time, many of the Jews felt as if God had. They they felt as if God was done with them. This was one of the lowest points in the nation's history, and many were left questioning whether or not God was there at all, whether or not he was still with them. I'm sure you had many asking, where are you, God? Our enemies have destroyed us. Our neighboring nation, Edom, has played a role in our downfall. Our enemies are everywhere, and our nation that at one time was prosperous and established and powerful is now in ruins. We have fallen to this wicked bunch of Babylonians. We're being held captive by them. We're at our wits' end. Are you even there, God? Do you even care? Sure, many Jews were asking these types of questions this time. Well, we're going to address these questions this morning in this book. And though I believe most of you in here would agree with me that, that God does exist, that he does care 
for his people that he is in control. Be honest with me for a minute. I think if many of us were honest at times during trying and difficult times like what the Jews were going through, it sure doesn't feel like it, does it? I think at times when tragedy strikes, especially when it hits close to home and affects us directly, we can relate to the Jews here, can't we? How many of you have ever felt this way? Times are tough. Have you ever asked, where are you, God? Are you there? Do you even care? Are you in control? Sure, many of the Jews felt this way, watching their nation crumble at the hands of this wicked group of Babylonians. Well, here's the good news. Like we learned last week, we see in God's word that God does exist and that God cares. He cares a lot. He is concerned with us, and he is in control, even when it seems as if he's not. Not only does God care, and not only is he in control, but get this, God also teaches us in his word how we are to respond to him during trying in difficult times like these when it seems as if he's absent. And we're going to discuss that this morning in Obadiah and learn how we are to respond when it seems as if God doesn't care, when it seems as if he is not in control. The first thing we learn from Obadiah is this. The first thing we must do is this. When times are tough and it doesn't seem as if God is in control, we must, number one, return to God's word and stand on his truth how great was it that we sang great is thy faithfulness this morning that's the message here god is faithful look at obadiah verse one the vision of obadiah thus says the lord god concerning edom we have heard a report from the lord stop there for just a minute now, as we've said already, the Jews from the south, they're in a bad way. They're in shambles. They are, they are falling. They are, their nation is falling. It's crumbling around them. They're falling to Babylon. And Edom has worked with the Babylonians to bring them down. And though God could have fixed things with the snap of his finger, he didn't, right? Though he, though he could have made things right, again, with Judah right away without any effort at all he didn't at this time now there were times in israel's history when god did work in this way right but he he doesn't hear and this should show us something very important listen it's important to remember that even when god doesn't work in your circumstances in an immediate and obvious and miraculous way even when he doesn't make things right right away that does not mean god is not present and at work that's key again we learn in this book that though at times it seems as if god is is absent and not in control. Those are the times we find he is very much in control. While the southern kingdom is in shambles and the Jews are in captivity, though God does not fix Judah's problems all at once, he does show he's there by sending his message by way of Obadiah. And here's the message that he sends through Obadiah. He says through Obadiah, thus says the Lord God. Or in the NIV, I love the way it puts it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. 
The NIV includes sovereign here. And the reason why is because that's the emphasis in this book. The emphasis in this book is on a sovereign God who is in control. So Obadiah is telling his Jewish audience, hey, I know it seems as if your world is falling apart and that things are out of God's hands because the wicked nations of Babylon and Edom have come up against you and you've been brought down and they're continuing to prosper while you suffer. But Obadiah says, though that's the case, I have a message from the sovereign Lord to you. I have a message from the God who is in control about this wicked nation of Edom who has exploited you. So so Obadiah brings this message to this group of Jews who have hit rock bottom, and he tells them, I have a word from the sovereign Lord that you can cling to. I got a message of hope that you can trust in. And let me briefly summarize this message for you. First, notice it's a message against Edom. Obadiah says, this is what the Lord says about Edom. Edom was a nation that bordered Judah. And though this nation was small and not that impressive militarily, it was a nation that was doing well in many other areas. It was a prosperous nation, okay? And and while the Jews in the south were being repeatedly attacked by the Babylonians, this prosperous nation of Edom takes the side of the Babylonians and works against God's people and is exploiting them and taking advantage of them. When the Babylonians attack in Israel, the, the Israelites and Judah, when the Jews, they, they flee to the south, many in Edom captured them and delivered them over to the wicked Babylonians. Many of the Edomites even took up residence in the Judean villages and were spies for the Babylonians and were looting in these villages, in these Jewish villages, while the Jews were being leveled. They were prospering at the expense of God's people. And Obadiah tells us this. Look at verses 13 through 14. He commands them not to do what they were doing. He says, do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Obadiah here is speaking against what the Edomites are clearly doing and how they're exploiting Judah and setting themselves against them. And Obadiah makes it clear here. God is not happy with Edom because they did not come to the aid of Judah. Now let's ask this question again. Why? Why is God so angry at at Edom and not Babylon? Let me give you a little context here. You see, these two nations, Edom and Judah, go way back. They got a history Do me a favor, mark where you are, flip back to Genesis chapter 25. And as you're turning there, let me give you a a brief review of the second half of the book of Genesis, starting in chapter 12. Chapter 12, we learn that, that God calls a man named Abram out of a pagan land, and he sets him apart for his purposes. And he says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, 
and through you all nations are going to be blessed. And eventually he changes his name to Abraham. And things happen exactly the way God says. Abraham has two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And of the two sons, Isaac receives God's favor and blessing. And the promise made to Abraham continues through Isaac. And then Isaac grows up and he has two twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And of these two sons, Jacob receives God's blessing. He is the one God favors. And God's promise made to Abraham that goes through Isaac continues on through Jacob. Though Esau was the oldest, right? He was born first. Though that's the case, the blessing goes to the younger brother, Jacob. Look at Genesis 25, beginning in verse 23. Listen to what God says to Rebekah. Two nations, he says, are in your womb. Do you get that? Two what? Nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So God is speaking here to Rebecca. She's pregnant with twin boys. And the Lord says to her, you are going to give birth to these two twin boys. And each boy is going to be the father of a nation. And he says that the older child is going to end up being a servant to the younger one. So he says Esau and his descendants are going to end up serving Jacob and his. And as we continue reading, we see that Jacob is the one who receives the blessing. He is the favored son. Through a series of events, Jacob gets the blessing from his father over his older brother. And many of you remember how he gets that, right? Yeah, uh, his, his father is deceived, right? But Jacob gets the blessing and, and he says to Jacob, let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's son bow down to you. You hear that? Who's Jacob's brother? Who's his mother's son? Who's he talking about? Talking about Esau, right? And he says, cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. And this here fulfills what God said to Rebekah. And Jacob gets his father's blessing, and the descendants of Jacob end up being who? Who? Who are the descendants of Jacob? Israel, right? And take a wild guess who the descendants of Esau are. Exactly right. Edom. Here we have the beginnings of Israel and Edom right here. And these two nations are the two nations that are in conflict in Obadiah. So this, this feud between these two nations, it goes all the way back to Genesis where we're told these two twin brothers wrestled in the womb. We're told that Jacob was born grabbing onto Esau's heel, right? This struggle began in the womb. It began from birth. And because these two nations were started from these two brothers, and because of the blessings given in Genesis 27, God is indicating here through Obadiah that Edom should have backed Judah. Should have backed Judah. 
Judah and Edom were brother nations. And Edom should have sided with Judah, but instead they stood against them and with the wicked and godless Babylonians. Now you have to think, pedigree is very important in ancient Israel. So you have to think that most every Jew at this time would have known about the history between these two nations, right? And the promises that God made in Genesis 25 and the blessings Jacob received in Genesis 27 that the descendants of Esau were to serve the descendants of Jacob. And if they didn't, if they stood against him, they would be cursed. So you have to think that when Edom turns against Judah and comes to the aid of the Babylonians to fight with the Israelites, you have to think that many of the Jews were questioning God on this. thinking, where are you, God? You know, I thought you said that Edom was going to serve us. And if they turned against us, they would be cursed. You're just going to let him go? What are you going to do to them, God? Are you there? Do you care? And if you do, are you in control? You have to think they were thinking this way. Well, I think this is one of the main reasons God sends Obadiah to prophesy against Edom. He does it to reassure his people, get this, his word is true. His word is true. Do you see that there? He does it to show that his promises are still in place. He does it to show that he has not forgot his promises that he made to his people in Genesis 25 and the blessings that he gave to Jacob in Genesis 27. And you'll find as you read through Obadiah this week, I hope you do, it won't take you long, okay? You'll see I kind of gave you some, some grace there. You know, Hosea was... 14 chapters in one week. You got 21 verses to read this week, all right? So aim high, get it done. Um, But you'll find as you read through Obadiah this week that God keeps his promises. He reinforces these blessings. Listen to what he says. Listen to what God says through Obadiah about Edom in verse two. He says, behold, I will make you Edom small. Among the nations, you shall be utterly despised. He says, you're going to be rejected, Edom. You're going to be cursed. So Obadiah reassures his Jewish readers here that God is going to keep his promises. Though Edom was living large at present, Obadiah says, you're going to be cut down. You're going to be cursed. God reassures his people here in this book that God's hand of judgment is going to fall on Edom for turning against his people. God's going to keep his word. He's going to bring these people down. So Obadiah comes on the scene and he brings this divine message of judgment here that there's going to be a a reversal of fortunes. Though Judah is struggling... And Edom is prospering. Edom is going to pay for coming to the aid of the Babylonians. Folks, we learn a very, very important truth here. Listen, here it is. No matter what life throws at you, you can stand on the truth of God's word. You with me? That's a simple point. 
But it's crystal clear in Scripture. Those securities may prove to be insecure. Though those whom you trust the most may betray you, God always does what He says. He keeps His promises. His Word never fails. It's true, it's sure, it's secure, and we can stand on it. Matthew 24, verse 35. Listen to the words of Christ here. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. That's pretty definitive right there, isn't it? Folks, God's word is more sure and more permanent than the sky above us and the earth beneath us. That's what Christ is saying. That's pretty sure, right? So here's the first point. When the times get tough, And it feels as if God is not in control. Something we need to do as believers is return to God's word, return to the promises that he has made to us, and stand firm on those promises. How many of y'all remember the old hymn, Standing on the Promises of God? Y'all remember that? Listen to these lyrics. They're so good. Standing on the promises that cannot fail. When the howling storms of doubt and fear assail. By the living word of God I shall prevail. Standing on the promises of God. That's biblical. That's good. Times get tough. Tempted to question God's presence. Doubt is control over your lives. You should return and stand on his unchanging and certain promises. Here's the second thing we need to do as well. Times are tough. Feels as if God is not in control. Not only should we, should we stand on the truth of God's word, but number two, we must avoid the natural tendency to take over. That's key. Avoid the natural temptation to take the reins. When it doesn't seem as if God is in control, our natural tendency is to want to take charge. Right? to take over, to take the place of God. Folks, we've got to suppress this desire. That's what walking in faith is. We have to avoid this natural temptation to take the reins and take over. Now, many of you know this is tough for us, right? Because we're Americans. We are. We're taught from a young age. You do that, right? You make your own way. You're the captain of your own ship, the master of your own fate. We're told, you want something done right, you do what? You do it yourself. Taught to depend upon no one but me. To pull myself up by my own bootstraps. That's the mentality of the Edomites. They're going their own way. As we said earlier, Edom was a neighbor to Israel from the south. And they were located in this mountainous region. And they had built their cities way up in the mountains. Though we like, like we said earlier, they were not all that strong militarily. They always had the higher ground. They were safe and secure, so they thought. They, they felt as if we are safe and secure no matter what. And they felt as if they could just do whatever they wanted to do and remain safe and secure because of where they were located. And they thought, who's going to do anything to us? You know, who's going to touch us? Who's going to mess with us? We're safe and secure where we are. Look at what God says to them, verse 3 through 4. He says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. 
The Edomites were prideful and arrogant. They thought too highly of themselves and they were deceived by their own pride. Listen to this. God says, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Says, you think you're fine, secure? Guess who's above you? And I will bring you down. And that's exactly what God did. The Edomites had become self-sufficient, self-secure, and their hearts had deceived them into thinking they could live however they wanted to live. Notice the root word pride used here. This is very interesting in verse 3 of the Edomites here is used, the same word is used three times in the Genesis account where Esau gives up his birthright. Isn't that interesting? Remember the story? We're, we're told that Esau had been out in the fields and he was a hunter, so you want to, you, you like to think he's probably out killing his, or trying to kill his food, but he doesn't find anything, obviously, because he comes back hungry, Right? Comes back tired and, and famished and hungry. He feels as if he's going to, to die. So Jacob talks him into selling him his birthright for some stew. Esau was prideful, right? Like father, like nation. He thought, I, I don't need this birthright. When times got tough, he said, I'm take care of myself. I make my own decisions. I make my own way. I don't need this birthright. I don't need this blessing from God. I make my way for myself. And he took matters into his own hands and he took the reins of his own life and he made this decision. Poor, poor decision. Apart from and opposed to God, the Edomites did the exact same thing. They were to have their brother nation Israel's back. But when Babylon came into town, they sided with them. They said, we're we're safe and secure. We got nothing to worry about. So they opposed Israel. They stood against God and his word. They sided with the Babylonians. And notice how God responds once again to them. In verses 3 through 4, he says, you say in your heart who will bring me down to the ground. God says, I'm going to bring you down. And then in verse 10, he says, I'm going to cut you off and I'm going to remove you forever. He says, I'm going to bring you down. I'm going to cut you off. I'm going to destroy you forever. They thought they were in the driver's seat. They thought they were in control. How wrong they were. The pride of their hearts had deceived them, and it led to their destruction. Folks, we, like Esau, we, like Edom, can be deceived as well by our pride, can't we? When things are uncertain, when times are tough, at times we act just like Esau did when he sold his birthright. We, in our pride, think, I gotta take the reins. I gotta take over. I gotta get things worked out. I gotta help God out. I know that sounds silly to say, but don't you think it? Don't you? We take matters in our own hands and we, we put our hope and our confidence in ourselves and not in the Lord. Folks, we mustn't do that. At times, Even when God seems absent, especially when he does, we have to avoid this temptation to take over 
and to take the reins. Instead, we must trust that God is in control even when it seems as if he isn't. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't do anything. We should just kind of lay back on our beds and say, do a miracle, God, I'm trusting in you while I take a nap. No. Must go forward with him be faithful in prayer and turning to him and, and we need to act after we, we look to his word for guidance and direction. But we must ultimately rely upon God and look to him for guidance and direction ultimately place our faith and trust in him. Here's, here's the last thing we must do. When it seems as if God is not in control, we must also simply trust that he is and believe that he will write all that we have wronged. We must trust that God is in control and will right all that we have wronged in our own sinfulness. Though we've been focusing on the, the wicked Edomites this morning and how Judah fell to the wicked Babylonians, please don't lose sight of the fact that the main reason why Judah fell was because of their own sinfulness. God told them, to repent and turn back or there was going to be a, a, a cost to their wickedness. They were going to be paid back for that and they were. They experienced a fall. Both nations fell. In the first part of this book, Obadiah's focus is upon Edom, about how God will judge and destroy them. But toward the end of this book, though Israel had, had turned away, though they deserved the, the punishment that they received, in the second part of this book of Obadiah, Obadiah ends by telling us how gracious and merciful our God is in that he is going to restore Judah. So we see here, though many people view the, the minor prophets as being all doom and gloom, we see God's mercy, God's love, and his grace all throughout these books, don't we? We learn here that though it seems as if God has quit on Judah, even though it feels as if he is absent, does not care, or is not in control, we learn here in the latter half of this book that God is very much in control, and he's going to prove it once again by making right all that Judah had wronged. Look at verse 21. God says through Obadiah, Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Remember, during this time that Obadiah is writing this book, Judah is in a bad way, like we've said. They're in shambles. This is the lowest point in the nation's history, and it would appear to them and to the rest of the world that God is nowhere to be found amongst this group of people, and that he is not in control. But the message of Obadiah to Judah is this. His message is this, simply this. God is very much in control. Therefore, be patient, be faithful, be encouraged, hold on, stand firm, continue to trust, do not lose heart, because God is in control and God has a plan. Though right now, it appears as if the southern kingdom is going to be no longer because they've fallen to the mighty and wicked Babylonians. Obadiah tells them God is the one who is ultimately in control. He is on the throne and there's coming a day when that's going to be known. There is coming a day when you will clearly see that your kingdom 
and all the kingdoms of the earth are the Lord's. There is coming a day when you will see that God is the one who is enthroned on high and he is the one who reigns forever and ever. That's the message of Obadiah. That's the message of the scriptures, isn't it? And and it's a great word for us today, isn't it? There are evils taking place in our world today that cause us to question God's presence and doubt whether or not he's in control. But get this, folks. Scripture is clear that he is. He is. Hundreds of years after Obadiah, God would prove this once more by sending his son to enter into the world, to become one of us. And the reason he did so is because of our sin. Isn't it? It's true. He did this to make right what we all had wronged. We were held captive because of our sin. And God sent his son to overthrow the prince of this world, to defeat sin and death for us so that we, through him, could be delivered and brought back into God's kingdom. And though it is not yet time, get this. Scripture is clear that there is coming a day when Christ is coming once again. He is returning. And at that time, God's kingdom, we're told, is going to come in its fullness. And on that day, once again, God is going to make it obvious that he is present, not silent, but in control. Scripture is clear we need to be ready. We need to be ready for that day by making sure that Christ is our Lord today. Because like it was with the Edomites, folks, God's judgment and his wrath awaits those who have rejected him and who have set themselves against him in their sin. So if you're here today, Christ is not Lord of your life, I urge you. Make him your Lord today so that you'll be ready when that day comes. Let's pray.